I interviewed you and, and I asked you a couple of questions and I said, thanks. And we're going back to the local affiliate. And you said to me, hey, you know football. Those are really good questions. Like I was floating the mm -hmm. entire way back to <laughs> KSDK. And stuff. Peter King said, I knew football. Like That was like God coming down and baptizing you with holy water. Oh, that is really cool. Hey, everybody. What's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into Half Forgotten History. Glad you're with us. So the NFL is the thing now, right? It's this year-round entity that gets our attention whenever we see the shield. And someone that's been there to watch this thing rise from being just a dominant sport to a dominant entertainment industry has been Peter King. You've written and listened to Peter on NBC. You've consumed him wherever he's been, whether it's Sports Illustrated, NBC. He's been around forever. Sat down recently to talk to Peter about the meteoric rise over the last three decades of the NFL and where he thinks the sport is going. So enjoy this episode of Half Forgotten History with Peter King. All right, so how does a basketball, baseball, and soccer player from Enfield, Connecticut, somehow manage to be the preeminent voice of NFL coverage for decades? Well, you're a nice guy, Trey Wingo. Look, when I went to college at Ohio University, I wasn't even sure and wasn't even sure I wanted to be or whether I would be or even wanted to be a sports writer. I never wrote sports in college. I always was, I covered news. I was the managing editor of my school paper my senior year. And uh, honestly, if the Toledo Blade had called me with a job on the city desk, uh, I'd be covering Ohio politics right now. I Or who knows what I'd be doing. But yeah. I was very fortunate in that a... Uh, a man named Frank Hinchy, who was my uh, intern boss in Cincinnati in the Kentucky Bureau of the Cincinnati Inquirer. We co I covered news. <laughs> I was lucky he got the sports editor's job at the Cincinnati Inquirer. And in 1980, he called me and they interviewed me and I got the job. So that, you know, you're always, life is so much about happenstance. Yeah. You just, you never really know. I, I really, I always find it very interesting. I always tell young people who are asking me about this business and everything. I, I always say, look, I have no idea what this business is going to look like in five months, never mind five years. And the best thing you can do is be versatile. And that's what I tried to be. And so who knows if, and, and I, it, when I went to Cincinnati and got that job, I was covering college sports. I never covered the Bengals until my last year there. And so, I don't know, the rest is sort of history. So, so that's kind of weird, right? Because, like, I, I, I loved all sports, but football was always my thing, like, yeah. and specifically the NFL. You're growing up, in, as you know, in the East Coast, there's not a lot of great college football. But it was just it, – it wasn't a thing for me the way the NFL was. So did you have a proclivity to the NFL or was that just the way I the job the sort NFL. of unfolded? I loved, I loved, yeah. uh, when I was a kid growing up in Enfield, Connecticut, we used to make sure in our yard, we'd get, we'd have all the leaves raked by the time the giants came on, on Sunday afternoon. And, you know, it's funny when you, I grew up halfway between Boston and New York and people think naturally, Oh, you grew up a Patriots fan. Well, in the 60s, the Patriots... Were, Nobody was a Patriots fan. The dirt on the bottom of your shoe. Nobody was a Patriots yeah. fan. 
And by the time, you know, the 90s rolled around, all of a sudden, you know, in my town, there's not many Giants fans left, you know. But um, I I loved football. Um, I just, I never really said to myself, well, you know, when I grow up, uh, I want to write about it for 38 years. It just never occurred to me. But I just really think that you have to make decisions in your life based on what is kind of confronting you at the time and what is going on in your life and in your surroundings. You just can't predict how life is going to go. You just got to react to it, you know, when it happens. Obviously that reaction has worked out pretty well for you. I always like to say the word, you know, you want to hear God laugh, make plans. Right. And then, uh, and then, then you'll find that what you had in mind probably isn't the way it's going to work yeah. out. So when you when you started at the Inquirer, which was the, the, the big the big paper, uh, the first big paper that you sort of got into, when did you in that first that first season of covering the Bengals? When did you think, hey, this I could really make something here. I could I could extrapolate this to to another level. Trey, there's nobody who has been more fortunate than me. I mean, I walked into Cincinnati as the backup guy on the Reds and sort of a general assignment person. And, you know, one of my first assignments that year in the baseball season was to go over and do a sidebar on Pete Rose coming into town with the Phillies. And, yeah. you know, so, I, you know, you just sort of, at age 23, you're thrown into the fire. And uh, so it was good to be able to, you know, nobody said, hey, you're just a kid, go do this. I mean, you know, hey, go uh, go talk to Johnny Bench about the twilight of his career. I mean, you know, so uh, there, were, there were those things. But by the time 1984 rolled around and I got an opportunity to cover the Bengals, I am dead serious when I say I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth because Paul Brown was the owner of that team. And although he was a bit of a recluse, he turned out to be a real guiding force in my life for a little while. Um, but the coach of that team, Sam White, oh, yeah. always said to me, like when we covered training camp in those days, 1984, we were up at Wilmington College, like an hour plus northeast of uh, Cincinnati and nothing at all in the town. And and it was all the university. So when the Bengals were there, that was it. So, but, so I lived in the dorm with the players and caddy corner across the hallway was Mike Brown. And right down the hall, Sam White saying, hey, if you ever need anything, you ever have any questions, just come knock at my door. I bet 10 times that summer at 9.45 at night, I knew his meetings were over. I knocked at the door, went in, talked to him for an hour. And you wow. know, so it was incredible. And I'd say once a day, almost every day, there were two-a-day practices. This is the old day of the old days of NFL training camps. I watched practice with Paul Brown. You know, I always kick myself because I never, ever, uh, you know, recorded anything, took notes, said, hey, what's the secret to life? You know, I never I never yeah. did anything. I just stood there and watched practice with Paul Brown. But that was such a fortunate thing. I mean, and, and the other thing I learned in that first year that really helped me a lot is I was never afraid of asking for too much. And, and, and yeah. I'll, give, I'll give you an example. That first year, 
every year the the Cincinnati Inquirer would do a huge Bengals section before the start of the season, just like I'm sure every newspaper does, or at least used to. Did. When people yeah. read newspapers. But uh, so I knew that Sam was an amateur magician. And I went in one day in the summer and I said, hey, Sam, we, we got this. Uh, I'm doing a long story on you for our Bengals section to start the season. And I, and I, I wonder, how would you feel if I brought a rabbit here to the facility one day and you got dressed up in your tux that you use when you go out and do magic shows? I'm dead serious. Sam White went out and did magic shows. It was his hobby. That's incredible. And so I said, how would you feel about getting dressed up in your tuxedo and pulling a rabbit out of a hat? And he said, oh, I would love to. <laughs> and so now the only problem is, where do you find a rabbit? So yeah. I go to the pet store at the Beachmont Mall on the east side of Cincinnati. And I walk in and I say, hey, uh, I'm Peter King. I work for the Cincinnati Inquirer. I cover the Bengals. And I explain that I need to borrow a rabbit for two hours because Sam White, the coach of the Bengals, is going to pull a rabbit out of this hat. And the guy looked at me and he he basically said, um, he had no idea what to do. But he allowed me to take the rabbit if I left my driver's license and a credit card with him. And so I did that and I said, I'll be back in two hours. I was back in an hour and a half because I went there. Sam was all dressed, ready to go. He had his top hat. And there on the front page of the Cincinnati Inquirer on September 5th, 1984, whatever day it was, was Sam White just like this, pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And so that to me was a big lesson. So the next year when I got to cover the Giants, they got really hot in 1986. And I asked Parcells one day, I said, hey, can I ride to work with you one day? And, you know, at five in the morning. And he looked at me like I was from outer space. He goes, no. What are, you, what are you talking about? But then eventually he let me do it. And, yeah. you know, what does the coach of this team think about on his way to work? What does he do when he stops and get the papers and, and coffee? You know, it's a great thing in, in football where they say, ah, I don't read what you guys write. I said, they ourselves, always uh, you know, in the, in the parking lot of whatever it was, some, some deli in Jersey, and he's got five papers there and he's quickly leafing through to see what Phil Sims or Joe Morris or Lawrence Taylor said to the post or the daily news or the Bergen record. But I mean, that just really taught me my experience in Cincinnati is, Hey, listen, you'll never get it if you don't ask for it. So that's over the years, you know, when I've done stories like taking a bus across country with John Madden, you know, John Madden doesn't call you and say, hey, you want to take a bus ride across the United States with me? No. Yeah. I mean, Carson Palmer doesn't allow me inside his house for a game week, uh, you know, because he says, hey, let's do this. It'll be fun. No, it's me working on Carson Palmer and Bruce Arians in 2015 with with the Cardinals to, you know, to make to make them say yes, you know, to get them to yes. So. Anyway, that's yeah. that's one of the things I, I learned that was pretty important early on. 
Well, it is like I, I always tried to tell my kids and, you know, this generation, a lot of younger people that ask me, how do you do this? And they're like, well, I want to bother somebody. I'm like, no, bother them. Like bother yeah. them until they tell you stop bothering me or they <laughs> say yes. Because if you're like, there's a fine line between being aggressive and stalking and you sort of have to walk that line when you're trying yeah. to get into the business, you know, and you have to you have to push them. You have to push people a little farther then you feel like you need to at times to achieve the results that you want. Look, Trey, one story I always remember that, you know, why would you remember this story? But I remember this story when I was an intern in Cincinnati working in the Kentucky Bureau. There was a car accident and uh, a mother, a father, and four children were all killed in the car accident and left behind was, I don't know, 17 or 18 year old boy who was at home and had something else to do and was not on this trip with his family. And I had to call the home. This is in pre cell phone days. I got to call the home and try to get a hold of, I forget his name, try to get a hold of this kid and ask him about what happened and what is, what are you going to do with your life now and all that stuff. And we got about five minutes into the conversation. Obviously at first you apologize profusely for bothering him and so sorry about your, your, your parents and your family, but then you got a job to do and you just have to ask, what happened? How do you feel? What all this I mean, the unfortunate thing is there are going to be many people who listen to that and say, leave that poor kid alone, you know, and maybe you should leave the poor kid alone. But when six out of seven people die in a family, I'm not saying it is the public's right to know how the seventh person is doing, but that is the business we chose. Yeah, you're right. And, and, uh, I can I can recall uh, being a reporter having to do some of those things and you never feel great about it but you know that's yeah, part of the job part of the job um, it's part of the gig so speaking of gigs after Cincinnati and you sort of alluded to it you get to Newsday in New York at a time where you had know, Newsday Daily News Times New York Post very very competitive sports uh, newspaper market yes kids there were times where there were many many newspapers and everybody loved them and, and you mentioned uh, the ride with Parcells. You got to Newsday to cover the Giants at a very, very interesting time. Well, when they under under Bill had just sort of started to become the thing that people would remember Bill Parcells and the Giants forever for. That's that's again. I'm just saying that this is. I start talking about things like this, and I realize how incredibly fortunate I am because, yeah. you know, what if the Bengals who weren't very good? What if they had a a grizzled old horse crap coach. And I, you know, Hey kid, I'll see you for 10 minutes every day. And that's it. You know, and you know, New York was the same way. The great thing about new covering the giants was uh, you competed with, with 19 other newspapers every day. And some of the people who were on the beat, you soon found out were incredibly, you know, they were kind of Schefter before Schefter, you know, they're just, they, they really worked hard at it. They had great sources, great contacts. 
it just really made me a lot better. And at that time, the Giants had such an interesting team with Lawrence Taylor. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, Trey, one day, Giants were going really good. I think it was the end of the 86 season. I'm waiting for Harry Carson to get out of the shower and, and standing next to me also waiting to talk to Harry Carson is Richard M. Nixon. And, <laughs> you know, I, you know, Nixon was a gigantic football fan. And I just wrote him a play for the Redskins in Super Bowl uh, seven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember, well, geez, I'm standing next to Richard Nixon. I guess I should say something. And he looked over at me and we started talking. He goes, well, I wish I had your job. He said, I always really <laughs> wanted to be a sports writer. And I couldn't think of what else to say. And I just blurted out, man, I'm glad I didn't have your job. <laughs> and because, you know, I mean, who wants to do that? I mean, I'm sure that yeah. a lot of people do, but I certainly didn't. But anyway, he used to come around the locker room all the time. All the, he, I mean, he, I bet he was at 70% of the Giants games in those days. He's just a super fan. He loved Phil McConkie, loved Sims, loved Harry Carson. Uh, you know, I don't know. It was that was a that was a real fun time because you realize, oh my God, this really matters. And I think the other thing in those days is that you know, I remember many times on the road happened in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, at a hotel uh, before an Eagles game, maybe in '86. Someone had told me that Parcells would sit in the lobby of their hotel, just talking to people, having coffee, smoking cigarettes on Sunday morning, starting like at six o'clock. So I lived in North Jersey. And I remember I told uh, my wife one day, hey, listen, Giants Eagles, one o'clock in the afternoon, but I'm leaving here at four. I'm going to their hotel. And Hopefully I'll catch Parcells before the game. And so I walked into the lobby of the hotel and Parcells goes, Jesus, you know, like not even a minute's peace. You know, the writers are in the hotel at 5.45 a.m. But, you know, I just ended up sitting there with them for 45 minutes talking about nothing. And so those are the kind of things that honestly, Trey, you know, they can happen in 1986. I don't think they're happening in 2022. <laughs> no way. No chance, no how. Listen, we take a, our first break here in a minute, but I just want people to understand how fun and how crazy that 86 Giants team was. Like, there are certain – like the 85 Bears, everyone knows about the yeah. 85 Bears and the 2000 Ravens. That 86 Giants team with Taylor uh, and, you know, Carl Banks, Gary Reasons. Uh, Harry Carson. uh Harry Carson's, yes. Uh, that team was a lot of fun. And, and that was a team that sort of built its way through the entire season. No one no one thought at the start of the 86 year, oh, Giants are definitely going to win it all and you know had this incredible showdown and just beat down of, uh, of the Broncos in the Super Bowl. That was a team that sort of found its footing through the season. And by the time they got to the playoffs, they were ready for anything. The fun thing about that team was – and. And look, I I talk about the old days and I don't mean to because I I'm not bitter about the way anything is now. Whatever it is, it yeah. is. We're we gotta cover it. So I don't I don't get upset about 
restrictions or anything like that. Do I wish everything was like it used to be? Yeah, but I mean, they played Washington for the NFC Championship game that yep. that year. They beat them seventeen nothing. The weather in New awesome. York at that time was awful. It was windy. So windy. It was, it was really really cold. And I remember on Friday of that game week, Sims was in the locker room, and I there weren't a lot of restrictions on us in those days. And I used to hang around whoever was in the locker room, just hang around and converse with them. Joe Morris, Gary reasons, Carson, George Martin, uh, Maurice Carthon. Taylor was never one of those guys because he just had no, no interest in it. But, but, and so one day I notice it's Friday afternoon. Sims is sick. He's, he's coughing, he's blowing his nose and, and everything. And he goes, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going home this weekend. I'm actually, uh, I'm staying at a hotel tonight and tomorrow night. Everybody in my family's sick. I got to get over this before the game. So I just said, hey, I'll see you after the game. I'm staying in, I think, the Sheridan Meadowlands. And he looks at me and he goes, hey, what are you doing tonight? I said, I don't know. I probably eating dinner at home. And he goes, why don't you, uh, why don't you go to dinner with me at this Italian place on route 17, uh, in Munaki. And I said, okay. So I went there, spent about two hours talking, uh, about everything. None of it for the record, just, just talking. Sure. And I just think to myself, when I think back, I said, Imagine being in the in the Patriots locker room before an AFC championship game a few years ago and Brady saying, Hey, what are you doing tonight? You want to go get a bite to eat? <laughs> you know, it's just it just yeah. things things have things have changed, but it's yes, it's dramatic. It's one of the it's one of the reasons that you were able in those days really to kind of get probably closer to players in those days than you can now. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to take a quick break here on Half Forgotten History with Peter King. When we come back, we'll talk about his time at what I thought was my sports barometer for many, many years, Sports Illustrated. Stay with us. We're coming right back. So the Rams, as you know, came from behind to beat the Bengals 23-20 to to win their second Super Bowl title and their first since 1999, when, of course, they were the St. Louis Rams, not the Los Angeles Rams. By the way, the Rams were minus 200 on the money line but failed to cover the four-and-a-half-point spread. They're just the second team in the last 17 Super Bowls to win and fail to cover joining the Steelers in 2008, who beat Arizona 27-23. to Now, Sunday's game went under the total of 49, marking the fourth straight Super Bowl we've hit the under. That's the longest under streak since Super Bowls 39 through 42. Rams wideout Cooper Cup was named the MVP, paying off 7 to 1 odds. So now the question for LA is can they repeat? Super Bowl 57 early odds are out there, and the Caesar Sportsbook has the Rams at plus 1,000 to win the next Super Bowl, third best odds behind only the Chiefs and the Bills. As for the Bengals, they are at plus 1,400 for the fourth fewest odds, tied with the 49ers. And as we all know, the last team to repeat as Super Bowl champs, the Patriots, who won in Super Bowls 38 and Super Bowls 39. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on the Caesar Sportsbook YouTube channel.
All right, back on this episode of Half Forgotten History with uh, just the longtime preeminent NFL writer, blogger, reporter, whatever you want to call him these days, Peter King. Um, after Newsday, you joined Sports Illustrated. And there's a whole generation of sports fans out there now that don't know what that meant. Sports Illustrated, and, and listen, I I had an in. My dad worked at the Time Life Building, you know, so I, I, I'm very familiar with it on a lot of different levels. But there's, there's, a, there's a whole generation of sports fans that lived and died by picking up Sports Illustrated once a week to see what you guys were covering. What did it mean to be a part of that dynasty at that time? I mean, I was, I couldn't believe they called me. I just yeah. was utterly, utterly shocked. I mean, for people to understand, like, it would be like ESPN calling you 20 years later. You know what I mean? Well, that, it, here's it was what that it was. big here, of a deal. You know, Trey, here, here's what I say. In 1989, if you asked people, what has more juice, Sports Illustrated or ESPN? Probably oh, at the close. time, most people would say Sports Illustrated. Now, Absolutely. That changed, obviously, and it has changed drastically. But at that time... You know, I'm 31 years old, and I am utterly, absolutely shocked when Mark Mulvoy, the managing editor, uh, picked up the phone and called me and, and uh, talked to me about writing uh, a football notes column. And look, I just think that what, what happens and w- what happened in those days is that the NFL was covered at about one-tenth maybe one twentieth the level, both in the printed word and in the shrieking and in the, 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 the commentary about one tenth or one twentieth of what it is today. And so at the time there, it wasn't like everybody's dream job to go cover the NFL. No, it, you know, that was whatever it was, 32, 33 years ago. So, um, I said, yes, I went there, I had a ball and I was just in awe of guys like Paul Zimmerman and Frank DeFord and just really, I don't know what to say other than I honestly, I would always just think to myself, I am not worthy. I never have been worthy and just put your head down, work as hard as you can and hope that nobody kicks you out of the building. That's that was my attitude, especially early on. The the roster you mentioned some of them. The roster of writers at, at Sports Illustrated at that time. You know Gary Smith, Rick Riley, Gary Smith, yourself. The, yeah. I mean, it's just it was a murderer's row of of sports journalists. And it, one of the saddest things of my life in the business has seen that sort of yeah. dissipate. You know, yeah. I mean that 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 was such a thing for me. To, and especially, the, I can't remember what the name was. Was it the last word, the last uh, column at the end of the magazine, uh, the final, whatever the final, yeah. whatever it was. I forget what it. I forgot what it is. But yeah, that page was required reading for everybody. It was huge. Yeah. Absolutely, it was unbelievable. In fact, the first time I ever met you, you will not remember this. Uh, you were doing one of your book tours in '93. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what which book it was, but you came to St. Louis uh, to do a book signing. And, you know, obviously growing up where I grew up and, and knowing Sports Illustrated and knowing football, you know, like the chance to interview you, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. 
And it was in the middle of when the Cowboys were in the middle of their back-to-back Super Bowl seasons, 27 and 28. And yes, they'd go on to win 30, but that's Barry Switzer in a whole different situation. Um, and I, I interviewed you and, and I asked you a couple of questions and I said, thanks. And we're going back to the local affiliate. And you said to me, hey, you know football. Those are really good questions. Like I was floating the mm-hmm. entire way back to <laughs> KSDK. Peter King said I knew football. Like That was like God coming down and baptizing you with holy water. Oh, that is really cool. Hey, by the way, do you remember Zipper Zeppa? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Christopher Christopher Zipper Zeppa. His real name was Christopher. Zipper Zeppa was one of a kind, man. That dude was crazy. He was crazy. He worked in Cincinnati when I was there and he just oh. was he was so much fun. He really was yeah. a nice guy and man did he did he work hard at his gig. It was and then he went to St. Louis, and I kind of lost track of him. Where is Zip? I don't know. I, he left St. Louis while I was there, and I think he went on to do something called the Great American Radio Sports Show for a while. But I, I have not heard yeah. hide nor hair of Zipper Zepper for a long time. Yeah. I'll never forget one time he did he did a prediction wrong in St. Louis, and he said, well, I, I totally got egg on my face and smashed an egg on his <laughs> face <laughs> on television. And the yolk and everything's come down. I'm like, Took it to the next level. Yeah. Took it to the next level. Uh, he absolutely did. Um, and listen, you have been bestowed to me one of the great honors in all of uh, sports journalism, in, in, as far as I'm concerned, is you're a, you're a voting member for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. How did that conversation go? What what did that mean when, when that was sort of bestowed upon you? I think it happened in 1991. And... The problem with the Pro Football Hall of Fame committee is that one day you look up and everybody in the room is 77. <laughs> and so, and so the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame basically said, man, we got to get younger. I was in a group of people right around then. They were trying to lower the age of the Hall voters. And so they called me and asked me. And when I walked into the room, I think I would first time I was 34 years old or something like that. I don't think I said anything for the first three or four meetings, Uh, but I do think that one of the things that I've really enjoyed about it over the years is opening up your mind and listening to other people about candidates, Um, whether it be uh, Warren Moon, when when uh, there was, I thought that when I walked into the room that day, there's no way I'm voting for Warren Moon. He never won anything. But at the end of the presentation, I said, look, whether it be this year, next year, whatever, Warren Moon is definitely a Hall of Famer. He's done so much. Uh, and I, but, but anyway, I've always thought to myself, our job as we sit in there is to be just like jurors in a jury box we have to take in all the information and make an honest decision about whether somebody belongs in the Hall of Fame. And that's how I've really always tried to do it. Yeah. My, my, the thing I have with the Halls, I feel like, and it, it's gotten better over the last couple of years, but I feel like there's not enough voters. Like there's too many voters for the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's yeah. 500, whatever. Right. And what it, It's about 50, right? It's about 50 49, or a little more. 49. 49, yeah, for, for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And to me, that almost feels too small because if you have one or two people that are obstinate in a certain way, 
it can preclude a lot of people from getting in or getting in well after I think they should have gotten in. I would really like to see it grow somewhere between 75 and 100. Yeah, what are well, your thoughts on that? I think one of the problems, Trey, is that whether it's on Zoom or whether it's in person, you know, COVID has had an impact like it has had on sure. everything. But you want to have a group where there can be free-flowing discussion. The more people you have in there, I'm not saying it's impossible, but the more people you have in there, especially opinionated people, I, I can just imagine if there's 75 or 80 voters, you look over on the side of the screen and there's 31 people have their hands raised and every discussion is going to last for a long, a long time. But I'm not saying that it's bad if I'd be happy to listen to the best arguments for that. Uh, and clearly having more voters would cut down um, maybe, I, I don't, I, because I do not think there are voting blocks at all, but it would cut down a few people being able to influence if, you know, let's say like, for instance, I'm totally convinced that Tony Baselli. Uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. And Absolutely. The unfortunate thing is there's a lot of people who believe that he didn't play long enough. He played 97 games. And one of my points is, well, he played more than Kenny Easley and Terrell Davis and, or you know, around the same number of games. Yeah. I think a few more, but close to the same number. And those guys are in the Hall. Now, it wasn't easy for them either, but they eventually got in. And I think you always have to just have an open mind on that. But, you know, having a lot of voters, having a lot more voters might cut down the honest discussion. But again, we'll see. Yeah, the, the voting block thing, listen, it may not be a thing, but it feels like it's a thing. You know what I mean? It feels like yeah. there's sometimes there's, there's just a couple of guys that can sway the room. I don't know. I, I, I just do like to think, see Trey, I do think there there have been times where I feel like I think it was the case with Paul Zimmerman for a long time. Paul Zimmerman could throw a wet blanket over anybody's candidacy or he could boost somebody's candidacy because he was such an oracle. So that helps. Like Rick Gosselin right now is just to me, he's the the absolute, uh, you know, he is the source and the sort of trusted guy I look at, um, you know, when I think of Hall of Fame voters. But be that as it may, the the overarching thing I would say about it is I really understand there's no time that I feel the enormity of that part of my job than when I watch and see who got in, who didn't get in, and all that it's it's uh it's it's incredibly humbling that's a it's a massive responsibility um why don't we take our, our final break here and we'll come back with peter king on half forgotten history we'll talk about how covering the game has evolved and how the game has evolved and where it's going to be 10 15 years from now stay with us coming right back with peter king 
So the Rams, as you know, came from behind to beat the Bengals 23-20 to to win their second Super Bowl title and their first since 1999, when, of course, they were the St. Louis Rams, not the Los Angeles Rams. By the way, the Rams were minus 200 on the money line but failed to cover the four-and-a-half-point spread. They're just the second team in the last 17 Super Bowls to win and fail to cover, joining the Steelers in 2008, who beat Arizona 27-23. to Now, Sunday's game went under the total of 49, marking the fourth straight Super Bowl we've hit the under. That's the longest under streak since Super Bowls 39 through 42. Rams wideout Cooper Cup was named the MVP, paying off 7 to 1 odds. So now the question for LA is can they repeat? Super Bowl 57 early odds are out there, and the Caesar Sportsbook has the Rams at plus 1,000 to win the next Super Bowl, third best odds behind only the Chiefs and the Bills. As for the Bengals, they are at plus 1,400 for the fourth fewest odds, tied with the 49ers. And as we all know, the last team to repeat as Super Bowl champs, the Patriots, who won in Super Bowls 38 and Super Bowls 39. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on the Caesar Sportsbook YouTube channel. All right, back with uh, Peter King on this episode of Half Forgotten History. And you sort of alluded to it earlier. Uh, The NFL is covered in a way that I don't think any of us who have followed the NFL for so long thought would actually get here. I mean, like the Super Bowl city used to be the last line in the little agate box in the news and notes in the back end of the sports page. Now it's a television show. You know, the draft has become... Uh, an absolute uh, circus. Uh, the combine is is getting there. It's going to be a traveling show pretty soon, just like the draft. Are you blown away by the un- insatiable appetite for football right now? I mean, I, it's great because that's the way I've always felt about it. But I, the NFL is a, has done an amazing job, in my opinion, of making sure that there's something to talk about regarding this league 12 months out of the year. Well... Trey, I am more moderate in my feelings about it. And I'll tell you why. Like, I love chocolate chip ice cream. And I think that if you gave me that for dessert 365 days a year after dinner, on the 311th day, I would say, can I have mint chocolate chip or something? You know, (laughs) can we please do something else? And I believe in the absence makes the heart grow fonder ethos. And what I mean by that is I think it's okay for football to go away for a while. I think it makes you more excited when teams get to training camp if you're not talking about it 24-7. When I did my website, the MMQB, starting in 2013 at Sports Illustrated, I did that for five years. And the one thing I really tried to do when I took the job is uh, look, one of the things that I really, I would, I told the editors, I really object to from about June 1st to July 15th every year. All we're doing is uh, providing a commercial for the NFL. That's a, when we write about the NFL, there's nothing going on. People are off. They're on vacation. I mean, like around June 15th, they they disappear for a month. Why are we forcing coverage like this. But they said, listen, you can't go away for six weeks and expect people on July 16th to wake up and say, oh, the MMQB is back today. 
they'll just go read something else. So I understood that and I had to yeah. do it. But over time, honestly, that was the thing that I really disliked about the job. Uh, to the point of like, like really being, I don't want to say offended, but I just, I was very unhappy, you know, working and doing, I mean, I remember we were, my wife and I were on vacation and I would take like a half hour every morning on vacation just to make sure everything was running smoothly. We just didn't have that many backstops, you know? And yeah. so anyway, in my opinion, I think there's, I, I think it's a little bit now of what I would call natural selection. When you see, oh my God, such and such got laid off. He doesn't have a job and maybe he goes and does something else. I mean, I just think that, that that's pretty natural that like, in, you know, the people who write about the NFL, that it's not going to be limitless. And so, and so I just sort of look at it and I love football and I love it for nine to 10 months a year, but I really wish it would go away for a while and I could sit in the stands at city field, drink four beers, watch the Mets lose and not have a care in the world about what's happening rather than three times during the game, checking Twitter to see that, to make sure that nobody signed a jillion dollar contract. Well, you're, you're right about that. A, the most honest thing you've said is watching the Mets lose. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, but you're, you're right. Like I got to the point where when people were live tweeting seven on seven drills, I'm oh like, okay, you need to stop. He went three for seven with two picks. He's throwing against air. It's a learning process. Relax. The problem is, Peter, the, the rat, you know, it's out. You know, it's not going back. You're not putting this back in the box. People are people have an insatiable appetite for anything about it now. And, and I think that's the guiding principle. And, and look, I think there are so many smart people who do this. So many smart people. Like, I, I'll give you a good example of what I think <clears throat> is really, it's valuable to me right now. Is, you know, like I'm a big fan of pro football focus. Because what I like to do is I sometimes just like to, uh, you know, have a, a Friday midday. After a Thursday night game, I'll look and I'll say, let's see, did uh, if the if Kansas City was playing, hey, how's how's Trey Smith, that that young kid, that right guard doing? Um, Good, he's doing well. Yeah, how is how is Creed Humphrey, the center, doing? And so I, you know, because I'm not gonna, I'm probably like most people who watch games, other than offensive line coaches, I'm not gonna be watching the offensive line on every snap. I'm watching Mahomes, but, but I do think, I think what is really, really interesting about the sport right now that fascinates me is how almost on a weekly basis during the season, and you can pick every season that teams will change. And it used to be that, that Bill Belichick was the only guy where every game plan was a snowflake. Well, yeah. I think now a lot of teams are like that. There was one game, you know, this past season where I had an incredible conversation after the game with Frank Reich of the Colts. Uh, he 
basically decided early in the third quarter because Jonathan Taylor, who obviously, you know, was, is a great player. And Jonathan Taylor was just owning this game. And Frank Reich said to himself, what am I doing? You know, he had passed the ball on a couple of first downs. Uh, One of them was incomplete. They ended up punting on that series. And he said to himself, standing there on the sidelines, every first down and every second down, everyone without fail, the rest of the game, I'm going to run. I'm going to call for a run. And would you think of that in modern football? Nope. I mean, you'd think almost the opposite, really. But that's one of the things that I think is so much fun about football that there are 943 ways to skin a cat. There's 943 ways to put a game plan together. And I think it is so cool to watch smart people, studious people, basically figure out how am I going to attack this particular defense or this offense. It isn't that this is new, but to me, as I get more and more interested in things other than, you know, the headlines about things that don't have much to do with football, those are the things that really interest me about the sport right now. No, you're, you're exactly right. I always think of it as wizard's chess. You know what I mean? It's a physically pounding game, but it is a mental thing that people a lot of times do not understand. All right, we'll finish up our time with Peter King with a couple of rapid fire questions. Yep. Um Let's start here. Will we see a full team overseas in the next five years? I don't think so, Trey. I used to think so, but now there are just too many obstacles in the way, the biggest of which is I think there would almost have to be two teams because to sit out there like an orphan, uh, you know, 3,000 miles away from the closest team, it would be a pretty big competitive disadvantage. And if, 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 it ever happens. I've had a couple of owners say we'd have to probably give them 15, 20 more percent on the salary cap to even though to you and I, oh my God, to live in Munich and play football or to live in London, how great would that be? The fact is, if you're from, you know, Palmetto, Florida or, you know, Chico, California, your goal the in life the same. when you're 22 years old is not to move to London. You know, it's yeah. to be yeah. with your pals. So I would say no. We're taping this in the middle of the first 17-game season, uh, regular season in the NFL. How long before we get to 18? I hope never. And if I have any- I, I hope never too, but I, I, I have a feeling it's coming. Well, all I can say is in week four of the – or week five – of the 2021 season, I did an all pro team of all players who were injured. It was week five. And my inspiration was that was the week that Russell Wilson got hurt against the Rams. Uh, I had that weird finger injury. And so I just sat there. It took me about 20 minutes and my team of players at every position who was hurt, is better than a Pro Bowl team. And so here we were one month into the season and either guys were gone for the year 
or they were out for some significant period. And, and I just keep thinking to myself, somebody wants eight, 18 games. And Trey, the only other thing I would say about this is the NFL always is having health forums and, and uh, you know, let's, let's make a safer helmet. Uh, let's do everything we can. Let's study the turf. You know, let's see about the shoes. Let's see about everything. Well, I don't know anything about relative rates of injury, but I know that if you expose a human being to 6% more football in the course of the year, then that's not caring about health and safety of players in any way, shape, or form. It's caring about one thing and one thing only, and that's money. The NFL is really good at making money. Um, Ten years from now, final question. Ten years from now, do you think the NFL will still be the king of the hill? I think it will be the king of the hill in ten years. I think the one sport that has a chance to knock it off very late in our lifetimes will be soccer. And people yeah. might laugh at that. Oh, my God, no, it's the NBA. and Maybe it is the NBA. But I look at what NBC has paid for the rights of the Premier League, you know, to show all those games in the United States. And I just said, something's going on. And I think I happen to think it's good. I'm not a big Premier League fan. I, I played soccer throughout my youth, and I love soccer. But I can only watch so many sports events, you know, so I don't really get into it, but I do think the uptick in interest in soccer and the understanding that you probably can live a fairly healthy, good life to age 85. Whereas you see so many players in football, either broken down physically or broken down mentally uh, by the time they get to 60 or 70 years old, that, in my opinion, I think that soccer seems like the best bet to be king of the hill in 2070. Yeah, well, we'll we'll, we'll see how how that plays we out. Won't, uh, we won't we won't see we it, maybe. But no, yeah, we will. <laughs> will. A, a future generation will tell us about it te- telepathically. I yeah. guess. Uh, Peter, always great to catch up with you. Uh, I appreciate everything you've done in your career, and uh, look forward to many more chats down the road. Thanks so much, Trey. Really appreciate it. So once again, thanks to Peter King for joining us. We'll see what happens as the NFL continues to be the thing that gets our attention no matter what time of year it is and what they're doing. Up next, a guy who always got our attention when he played, Hall of Famer Brian Dawkins. We talk about his meteoric rise from his high school days to his unbelievable days as a member of the heart and soul of that defense of Philadelphia and his very, very inspirational and surprising Hall of Fame speech. A lot of us were not expecting that in Canton. That's next week on Half Forgotten History with Brian Dawkins, the Hall of Famer. We'll see you then.